We're in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. I'll give you a moment to get there. John 14, 15 through 24. It's called Jesus Promises the Holy Spirit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of the truth whom the world cannot receive, because it is neither sees him nor knows him. You will know him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, because, but you will see me, because I live you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Richard, one of the elders here, uh, and have the privilege of bringing the word to you today. We're now in week three of working through the 10 practices in the following Jesus model that the the elders put together coming out of our retreat. As Matt has previously mentioned, these 10 practices that we're going to be talking about over the next couple months come from our study of what Jesus did, what Jesus told his followers to do, and what Jesus earliest followers, in fact, actually did and encouraged each other to do. So we looked through the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament and said, what do followers of Jesus do as a routine practice once they're following Jesus? And identified 10 things. So we've looked at the, the practice of Scripture two weeks ago and the practice of prayer last week. Today we're looking at the practice of obedience. Christians have a complicated relationship with obedience. There's some that are very fired up about obedience and treat it like it's the most important thing. They emphasize it more than anything else. Others don't emphasize it or mention it at all, often probably for fear that they'll get mixed up with that other kind of Christian who emphasizes it too much. So there's this pendulum swing from uh, this is all we talk about to, yeah, we don't talk about that. And so... uh, Jesus himself talks about it way more than you might expect, Uh, not just the passage in John 14 that we read today. So this morning, I hope to survey with you the Bible's teaching on obedience, especially the New Testament, so we can end up as a church with a healthy understanding of the role of this practice in our lives as followers of Jesus. Let's pray for God's help as we begin. Lord, would you give us grace this morning that we would be both hearers of the word and doers of the word. And may our obedience in both listening and living bring glory to you. Amen. We know because we talk about it pretty much every week here at Grace City that we are saved by grace alone through faith, not by any work of our own. And the passage from Ephesians 2 that that Krista read as our assurance of forgiveness today is a great one to revisit if you're ever doubting this. 
Go back to Ephesians 2 and see, by grace you have been saved through faith. So we are emphatically not saved by our own goodness. So let's take that as a given for the whole rest of this, if at any point you're, you're finding your brain going. So he's saying that we're saved by works. No, he's not saying that <laughs> at any point during this whole thing. We're taking as a given that we're saved by grace, and we become followers of Jesus through repentance and faith. And then this is about what do we do after that. So when we consider the practice of obedience and its role in our lives as people who are already following Jesus, here I think is the key question for us to focus on. Once we're already following Jesus through repentance and faith, should we do what Jesus wants us to do or should we do something else? Should we do what he wants us to do or should we do something else? That's kind of what all of this boils down to. Most Christians, I imagine, would answer, uh, yeah, we should do what Jesus wants us to do. And then once you answer yes, a whole bunch of other questions follow from that. Like, since obedience doesn't lead to salvation, what are the effects of obeying Jesus? What are the effects of disobeying Jesus and doing something else? Um, If we're going to obey him, what exactly does he want us to do? And how do we figure that out? And then... I think a very important question is, what about when it's hard to do? Because there are a lot of things he commands that are hard to follow. And so how do we practice obedience with those hard to follow commands? So to put that simply, it's basically, why should we obey? What should we obey? And how should we obey, especially when it's hard? So let's examine what the Bible has to teach us about each of those three things. Uh, So first off, what are the results or effects of doing what Jesus wants us to do, of obeying his commands? As I've said already, but I I can't overemphasize, our salvation is never a result of our obedience. We can't obey our way into a right relationship with God. Our salvation is a free gift of grace through repentance and faith. So that is a thing that is not an effect of our obedience. And given that fact, Christians can end up making two different mistakes, One is what's called legalism, which is behaving like obedience makes you right with God. And we know from the testimony of the whole New Testament that that just isn't how following Jesus works. We don't earn our way into his favor. But there's an opposite error, and I think it's the one that our culture here in Denver in 2023 is much more prone to, and that's to say, well, if I'm saved by grace, it really doesn't matter what I do. Or a a small variation on that is um, it doesn't matter what other people do. It matters what I do. It's just me and Jesus. Uh, we, we sometimes behave like this towards other people more than ourselves because it feels nice uh, and friendly. Uh, this is called antinomianism. Yeah, we have a term for this. It comes from Greek. Nomos is like law or rule. Anti is against. So it's like against rules. Antinomianism. And that's the opposite of legalism. And Just like legalism, antinomianism doesn't make sense if you read even a page or two of the New Testament. Um, Obedience doesn't save, but it's a big deal to Jesus and to the apostles. So Paul, for example, confronts this directly in Romans 6. He says, the beginning of Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So if obedience matters but doesn't save, Why should Christians obey Jesus? Well, the Bible gives us three good reasons. Number one, love. And we saw this in the passage today. Obedience demonstrates love. As Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. And the Apostle John, writing to the churches later, echoes this in 1 John 5, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So we show our love for Jesus by caring enough about what he says to actually do it. Reason number two, wisdom. We should obey God because God knows how he made us and how he made the world, and he wants good for us. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46 and following, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus is saying that the, the way to build a solid foundation for your life is to come to Jesus, hear his words, and do them. Notice both builders did the first two of those, come to Jesus, hear his words, but the builder with the foundation was the one who did the doing, who actually did Jesus' words. And if you skip the doing part, you don't have that foundation to withstand the storms of life. Way back in the Old Testament, Moses said something similar to God's people, Israel, just before they entered the promised land. This is Deuteronomy 5.33. He said, You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and you, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So we obey because we believe God actually knows something about what's good for us. Obedience is a way to flourish as God's creatures in God's world. And then reason number three is witness. Obedience is a witness to the world about the worth of the one who we obey. We see a couple examples of the apostles doing this in the very early church in Acts 4 and 5. The religious authorities call the apostles in and charge them not to talk about Jesus anymore. Don't talk about this, this gospel. And then Peter and John say, essentially, judge for yourselves whether it's better for us to obey you rather than God. Uh, the implication, God's way more important than you, and so uh, we're going to obey him because he's more worthy of our obedience. Let me give you a kind of silly example of how these three things, these dynamics, show up even in human relationships with people that we care about. Um, so my wife, Dawn, who's on vacation with her parents today, so she doesn't know I'm telling this story. Um, Dawn really likes decorative pillows, like throw pillows for, for beds and couches and chairs, uh, and maybe other people can relate to this. Uh, <laughs> so over the years, she's been slowly collecting more and more of these pillows every time they go on clearance at Ross or Home Goods or something. And I've realized recently that we don't just have a bunch of throw pillows. We have pillowcases for every season and color scheme and holidays, and they're constantly changing, which has probably been happening for years, but I just noticed. <laughs> oh, there's, there's a new set of pillows out here. Uh, <laughs> this is very different than my approach to pillows. Uh, I, I value a good pillow to sleep on, uh, but I'm like, there's two of us in this bed. We need like two pillows, like, maybe three or four, because you know, sometimes you want to put a pillow on your, your chest to read or something. But uh, I counted this morning. We have 13 pillows currently on our bed. <laughs> Still only two heads. 
Now, here's what this has to do with the message. When I'm the one making the bed, like this morning, I arrange the 13 pillows in the places they go <laughs> as much as I can. Um, not because I'm afraid like our relationship is going to fall apart and or Don's going to be angry at me and punish me or something. Um, I arrange the pillows because I care about my wife, not because I care about decorative pillows. Uh, I love and value Don, and I... I think she may know better than me about what's good for decorating our house, even if I don't get it. Uh, so my obedience doesn't communicate how much I care about pillows, it communicates how much I care about and value Dawn. <laughs> All right. And it's the same thing with God. The Bible doesn't just tell us to obey God, it shows us why it's good to do so, and it's very similar dynamics. So if we, we show love, we show... The, um, that we believe there's wisdom there, and we show the worth of the one we obey. And often as we walk with the Lord over time, and we see his goodness, like we sang about this morning, we start to see, or we start to do what Jesus wants because we see that it's good. We see that his commands are for our good. Uh, but it's when we obey the commands we don't totally agree with or don't totally get that's when our obedience particularly shows our love for the Lord and, and our witness to the value of the Lord. So that's the, the positive side. Let's flip it around. What are the effects of disobedience? If obedience doesn't save us, um, disobedience doesn't uh, put our salvation at, at risk, but it does have effects. So what are the consequences of disobedience once you're trusting in Jesus? Um, and it's the opposite of each of the three reasons to obey. If obedience demonstrates love, disobedience demonstrates indifference at best. It does damage to the relationship. We're, we're necessarily going to be less close to Jesus if we're disobeying his commands. And I think we often wanna have it both ways. We want the relationship, the comfort, the gifts that come from God, but we don't want to follow his way. And that's just not how relationships work. Like if, <laughs> if I was constantly um, throwing out the decorative pillows, that would have a negative effect on my relationship with my wife. <laughs> I would not demonstrate love. Um, second, if obedience is wise because God made us and knows how his world works, we can expect disobedience to have negative consequences. Now, of course, in our fallen world, that cause and effect relationship is somewhat broken and disconnected. We, we certainly see the, the wicked experiencing good things and people who seem to love God experiencing hardship. And the psalmist complains about this all the time, so it's, that's not a new phenomenon. Um, but I think in general, we can expect that we're more likely to flourish if we're doing things God's way. And um, just thinking totally practically about that, so many of the commands, especially in the New Testament, are about how to have healthy relationships with other people, like love one another, forgive one another, um, do good to one another in various ways. And so it sort of follows that you're going to have healthier relationships and a better experience in your life if you're doing those things versus not doing those things. Third, if obedience is a witness to the world about the worth of the one whom we obey, disobedience is the opposite witness. The world sees it and says, well, if these people 
who claim to care what this God says don't actually care enough to do what he says, why should I care? Okay, so that's the why. Let's get to the what. What does Jesus want us to do exactly, and how do we discover that? Well, obviously, the Bible is the best source to learn about what Jesus commanded, but there are different kinds of commands in the Bible, and we have to tease out a little bit how we handle those. So let's start with the, the most straightforward category of things that Jesus would have us obey when he says, obey my commandments. And that would be the many things that Jesus directly commanded his followers to do in his earthly ministry as recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, there's a lot of them. I'll give you just five examples just from the book of Matthew to give you a taste of the range of these. Um, Matthew 5.23, be reconciled to one another. Uh, 5.43, love your enemies. 6.34, don't worry about tomorrow. Matthew 7, 12, uh, treat others as you would like to be treated. Matthew 28.18 and following, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, of course, there are commands of Jesus in the Gospels that were given to specific individuals or groups at a specific time which don't apply to us, like Jesus told his disciples to go get him a donkey to ride into Jerusalem for the last Passover they were going to celebrate together. We are not commanded to go get donkeys for Jesus. And, and like, you can usually distinguish that pretty simply when you look at it, but I have seen people take commands from Scripture to specific groups or promises to specific groups and apply them to themselves in, in funny ways. Uh, so when you're looking at it, like who's Jesus commanding this to? Is he commanding it to his followers collectively? And he's saying, this is a thing you do as you follow me, or is he commanding it to a particular person at a particular time? Now, when Jesus says, obey my commands, it's not just limited to the recorded words from the three years of his earthly ministry in the Gospels. Uh, and we need to do a little bit of uh, quick theology to reason about this. So we believe in a triune God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we proclaim this every week when we recite the creed and in various other parts of our worship service. That's like core Christian theology for the last 2,000 years. So Jesus was and is fully God from eternity past to eternity future, and we believe the Bible it is the inspired word of God, which we proclaim every week after the scripture reading. We all said it today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thus, everything commanded in the Bible that is still binding on Jesus' followers today counts as things Jesus wants us to do, as commands for us to obey. So... That brings us to a couple other categories of things in Scripture that would still affect us as things that we should obey. Uh, after Jesus' own words, the next most straightforward category is the instructions to the church captured in the rest of the New Testament. This is the closest followers to Jesus who spent a lot of time with him saying, these are the things we should do as followers of Jesus. Uh, I haven't counted them up myself, but I've seen lists from people who have. And it looks like there are several hundred commands in the New Testament. There's a lot of these. And I'll highlight just a few examples from different um, books of the New Testament to show the kinds of themes that show up recently. Um, but this is not at all exhaustive. Um, so here's a few examples. 
Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Peter 3.8, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So we have direct commands of Jesus in the gospel, we have commands to the church and the rest of the New Testament, and then we have the commands from the Old Testament that still apply to believers today. Now, what do I mean by the ones that still apply? Well, if we look at the way Jesus and the early church treated the Old Testament law, they don't just ignore it all as no longer applicable, but they also don't just adopt it all as if nothing has changed. For example, we see in Acts 10 when the gospel first goes to the Gentiles, God shows the apostle Peter, a Jew, and a Jew who would have followed all of the laws in the Old Testament, that the ceremonial laws from the Old Testament about clean and unclean foods no longer applied. And then Paul echoes a similar theme in his letters around a lot of the ceremonial laws. Likewise, you have a large section of the book of Hebrews making the case that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross replaces the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. So we're not sacrificing bulls and goats and things now because Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all in our place. And so that same idea shows up throughout the New Testament. But the Ten Commandments, for example, all get restated in the New Testament as commands for the church at, at various points uh, from Jesus and others. So Romans 13.9, for example, says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Historically, the church has distinguished between three different kinds of commands in the Old Testament law. And this is really helpful for me when I first learned it to make sense of, I'm reading through Leviticus, what of this applies to me? Um, so the first category is ceremonial laws. These are the ones that are related to ritual purity and to the sacrificial system under the Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel. So dietary laws, like don't eat pork and shellfish, um, rules about what animals to sacrifice for what things, what festivals to celebrate. These no longer apply under the new covenant in Christ. So we don't do those things. And that's pretty clear from the New Testament. Second category is judicial laws. So those are the ones related to for example, the punishment and restitution for when your ox gores your neighbor. Which could happen to anybody. Uh, these ones are essentially related to the administration of civil justice in biblical Israel. It's God saying, here's how you run your civil law to be a healthy society in this time and place. These two don't apply to the church today, although it is useful to read them as case law with underlying principles that give us a picture of what God means when he commands us to do justice. Uh, this is an interesting thing about the Old Testament law. There's, there's two kinds of legal systems in the world. There's common law and civil law. And English law and American law following from it are common law. Like the law is mostly made up of lots of examples in previous cases. And you see in judicial opinions, they reason about previous cases. The other kind of legal system that's popular in uh, most of the rest of Europe, is the um, civil law system, which is we write everything down. And this is why the EU Constitution is 
huge compared to the US Constitution, like two different approaches to law. And the, the common law system we have today was influenced by the biblical law. It's like the, the rule about your ox goring your neighbor doesn't just apply to oxes, it's an example, and would apply to your dog biting your neighbor too. And so it's useful to look at those and just say, when God says do justice, what does he mean? And you can find the underlying principles to those things. Now, we're not bound by those as Christians in the same way as some of the other commands, but we can learn a lot from them. And once I realized this, when my Bible reading took me through Leviticus, it was a lot more interesting. It was not just, ah, these are weird laws for somebody else, but more of like, what is God telling me about how people can live in a healthy way together as a society? And you can pick up some useful things from that. Now, the third category of laws are what are called moral laws. And these are ones like the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Don't worship other gods, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, etc. And Jesus, the apostles, and the church for most of history have treated those as still applying to us as followers of Jesus. So pulling all this together, there are clearly lots of commands in Scripture that Jesus would be referring to when he says in our reading today in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the way to learn what they are is to spend time in Scripture, especially in the company of others who can help you tease out what commands apply to us today. All right, on to the last question that follows from agreeing that Christians should do what Jesus wants us to do. Namely, but what if it's hard to do what Jesus wants us to do? So this is the how question. How do we do it when it's hard? The practice of obedience is, in a sense, simple. Like we humbly try to discern from Scripture what Jesus wants us to do, and then we do the thing he wants us to do. But even though it's simple, it's not always easy. Many of his commands are, frankly, hard to obey. Like, love your enemies. Don't be anxious. Keep yourself pure. Jesus, fortunately, is not surprised by this. Psalm 103 puts it poetically. It says, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is why, if we go back to the reading today from John 14, right after Jesus says that those who love him will obey his commands, he says, I will ask the Father to give you the spirit to dwell with you and to be in you. Now, this sounds pretty commonplace to us. Like we think of the Spirit as just being a normal part of the Christian life. But in the Old Testament, it was different. So Jesus was sharing some, some news with his disciples there. In the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit would come on a particular person for a period of time for a particular purpose. You see this with some of the, the judges and prophets. And then the Spirit would you know, go away. So he wasn't in Old Testament believers in the same way as a matter of course. It wasn't like everybody in Israel had the Holy Spirit in the same way. That was a special thing. But there are several prophecies, like this one in Ezekiel 36, 27, that Jesus' disciples would have been familiar with. There are prophecies about how this is going to change. And it, it, the Lord said through Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So with that in the context, in John 14, Jesus is telling his followers, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit to live in you so that you can. 
Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we obey Jesus by the power of the Spirit in us. We're meant to humbly depend on and walk with the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus. There's an interesting kind of synergy there. It's not passive. We have to walk, but we don't obey just through our effort. It's walk in the Spirit. So let's look at a particular example. This sounds kind of abstract and, and mysterious. Um, we'll take a, a common one that Christians wrestle with all the time. So suppose someone has sinned against you. Maybe they've said something unkind and you're angry about it and you're hurt. So in that moment, if you ask, what does Jesus want me to do here? And you've been reading your Bible, various things might come to mind, like maybe Colossians 3.13, which says, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Or maybe Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But in that moment, you may think, as I often find myself thinking in this kind of situation, I'm mad. I don't want to talk to him. I certainly don't think I can just forgive him. So the command we need to obey in that moment is clear, but it's hard to do. Our, our heart doesn't want to do it. So in that moment, depending on the Holy Spirit to obey, sounds like praying something like, Spirit, soften my heart. I'm, I'm angry about how I was wronged, and I'm finding it hard to forgive. I know Jesus has forgiven me, and I want to obey him, but I can't do it on my own. So help me do what Jesus wants me to do. And that's the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. He wants us to be successful here. He wants us to thrive by obeying his commands. There, there's no benefit to him from catching us disobeying. And so we've got to depend on him in humility. And notice, by the way, how you pray that prayer, or even how you think about praying that kind of prayer, says something about how you think about God and his relationship to you. Like if I think about him as... A, a judge who's just looking for an opportunity to catch me doing the wrong thing, that I'm going to pray that differently, if at all, than if I think, here's, here's a father who loves me, and I'm his child, and he wants me to be successful, and he wants this relationship between two Christian brothers to work. Uh, I'm going to pray that with much more faith and trust that he actually wants to do this thing and actually wants to help me out. And, and if we look at Scripture, we see that God as Father rather than God as angry judge, is so much more accurate to who he is. And one of the questions we're going to look at in the gospel communities this week is, what are some of the various ways that God reveals himself to us and describes our relationship, and what does that tell us about how we approach obedience? And I think there's a lot there that obedience flows out of the right understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to him. All right, as I wrap up, let me summarize a few practical conclusions and applications. I have four of them. Um, number one, like, as a church, let's adopt the biblical perspective on obedience and its role in the Christian life. We don't want to be legalists. We don't want to think that our obedience is the basis for our salvation, because it's not. But we also don't want to be antinomians behaving like obedience doesn't matter. As Jesus followers, if we love him, we're going to obey his commandments. Number two, humbly go to scripture, to spiritual leaders, to Christian community to discern what Jesus' commandments are. 
go into that Bible reading and those conversations with a genuine desire to learn what Jesus wants you to do so you can obey him in love. I think sometimes we have a tendency to go to Scripture wanting to argue with it. Uh, like, I kind of know what it says, and I want to explain to God why he's wrong to command me to do this thing. And it's really hard to obey with that kind of heart. And when I find that in myself, I have to ask the Holy Spirit to even help at that stage of help me to humbly come to this and accept what you have for me. So if, if you don't have that desire, ask the Holy Spirit to stir it up in you. That's another one of those prayers he loves to answer. And like, show me how good your lie is so that I can read it with those eyes. And that, by the way, is something I've had to pray for a lot of years. I used to read the Psalms, like Psalm 119, that talk about how delightful the law of the Lord is. And uh, it's like, I, I don't really understand what the psalmist is talking about there because I look at all these rules about shellfish and things. And uh, like I, it's interesting maybe, but delightful? Love the law? I, I don't know. Um, and as I've prayed this over the years, I've come to see that God's commands are an expression of here's how to live in the world I've made and to, to thrive because I care about you. And Psalm 19 lands different now. 119. 19 probably does too, but I don't remember what it says. Um, that was number two. Humbly go to scripture and, and leaders and community to learn the commandments. Number three, um, for many of us, obedience to Christ isn't mostly a knowledge problem. There's some command that we know we're not obeying, and it's probably the one that you immediately bristled about the moment you heard me say the word obedience a half hour ago going into the sermon. There was probably something like, oh no, is he going to talk about X? And you probably know what it is. So it's not really a, a knowledge problem. It's what do I do with the thing that I know? And this is a place to ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to obey the command that you know, but you're struggling to obey for one reason or another. Trust his promise to do that work in your life. And then finally, number four, collectively, let's become a community of Jesus followers who have a healthy collective practice of obedience. We should be able to exhort one another towards obedience without that causing offense and causing people to withdraw from relationship. From a biblical perspective, it's not judgmental to say in love, hey, my brother or sister in Christ, here's a command that Jesus wants you to obey. As Hebrews 10.24 puts it, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I want to be that kind of community. So we're not just trying to work this out individually, but we're helping each other see what God has for us and walk in it. Let's pray.